Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, your weekly podcast about pursuing your passions in the creative arts and beyond. I'm your host, Alex Collegian. Today, we have a very special guest, writer-director Brad Anderson. You have seen his work. You may most likely know it, some you might not know it, but one of the most innovative filmmakers you've never heard of, let's say that. He won Sundance, he's done huge films, small films, indie films, blockbuster films, incredible television work with some of our most uh, beloved showrunners. Some highlights for me would be uh, most definitely Vanishing on 7th Street, uh, his co-collab with uh, show favorite Tony Jaswinski. Most of you know The Machinist, the Christian Bale vehicle that sort of, I think, vaulted him onto the international scene uh, right before Batman and after American Psycho. Uh, Session 9, still talked about in film schools, film debate, sort of become a beloved of uh, Gen Y, Gen Z. Uh, Next Stop Wonderland, The Darien Gap, The Call, Beirut, which I highly recommend. Another uh, co-joint with uh, Mr. Mr. Tony Gilroy, uh, Fractured and Blood, this is his latest. And he's got a new one coming out any second now called The Silent Hours with Joel Kinnaman and Mark Strong. And soon to be making uh, Twilight of the Dead, uh, the working title for the George Romero, I think it's the the end of the saga, or at least the latest incarnation of the uh, Night of the Living Dead uh, family of family-friendly products about eating flesh with uh, for fun and profit. But all kidding aside, that, that's a huge deal. and. Yeah, so uh, this was a really fun conversation for me. Brad and Tony uh, have worked together a lot. Tony's been talking about Brad to me for quite a while um, as a good guy, real guy. And he really is. And it comes across. And, um, you know, his CV might come across as very arty and, dare I say, pretentious. Not really, but, I mean, certainly some... You know, he won Sundance for Christ's sake. I mean, he's uh, an indie darling and has done some really. He's taken that and 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 gone in an artistic direction, which is what you should do. You know, you shouldn't grab the Sundance uh, win and then immediately report to Marvel Studios the day after. Although some people have done that, that's fine. I'm saying, when you got some capital, spend it. Try something different. Try something new. Uh, push the envelope you know I mean he did he he directed you know an episode of Peacemaker so I mean he's he's worked in the machine and outside the machine but I respect that when he gets some juice he tries something different we talked a lot about what is a Brad Anderson film what is his style what is it what you know how do I know within 30 seconds I'm watching a Brad Anderson movie and it's not 
you know, it's not Wes Anderson, let's say. I mean, you, you can tell within 10 seconds of the very regimented stylistic choices and sort of the mise-en-scene that he has determined to be his um, world, which I think for a lot of people is comforting. It's, uh, it's easy to recognize and then you kind of settle into, okay, what's he going to do within this, um, you know, playground of, of shot selection? And uh, I would argue that Brad Anderson's style is more about the way that he chooses his projects. I mean, we did kind of drill down to some interesting parallels that he, I think, kind of noticed but didn't really think too much about in terms of interesting locations that become characters in the films, things like that. But really, I think it's a level of quality. I think he attracts a level of actor that appreciates that he's not a journeyman so much as uh, an auteur but minus the pretension and the fucking ascot and the fucking affect he's just a dude he's very laid back i didn't pick up a lot of ego at all which is fairly rare for a director that's been doing it at a high level for 20 years you just don't see that in fact you know first-time directors wannabe directors like there's an ego there that's accepted it seems like because you know at least when i see it i go well i guess that's what's required to move you know humans and machinery and money and you know catch the light at just the right time but uh, i don't know brad anderson makes me think different about that now maybe maybe it's not necessary Maybe it's just another affectation like an ascot. But, I mean, the guy, he vibes like he would be the, you know, everyone's favorite prop man or something. Like, just very laid back. And I like that. I think it's probably served him well working with, you know, incredible actors like Mr. Ben Kingsley, Christian Bale, John Hamm, uh, Halle Berry, Woody Harrelson. It just goes on and on. It's just nice to see someone that uh, uh, found their calling, continues to deliver good work, and seems to stride for ever better, ever different, ever uh, more interesting stories. But um, without further ado, uh, this is How I Got Greenlit. I am your host, Alex Collegian. And my guest this week is writer, director, filmmaker, Brad Anderson. Enjoy. Hi, uh, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm your host, Alex Collegian, and we have a very special guest today, uh, writer, director, cinematographer, editor, projectionist, Brad <laughs> Anderson. Uh, he is kind of one of my favorites um i and, and by the way stop me if i forgot anything i'm just trying to i like i like that projectionist is part of the sort of ecosystem of film i was an oh, usher yeah, yeah. Uh, my first job was it was a theater usher so so i we're all filmmakers and in, in our way right from from the from the first point to the last point right. you know and uh i i i have uh sometimes 
sometimes I have entertainment attorneys on and I've come so far in this business that I now uh, appreciate them as a, important to the process as a cinematographer. <laughs> um, you know, it takes all, it, it takes a village to make, to make what films and, and television shows. And um, uh, for those of you who don't know, shame on you. Uh, Brad is actually a very important director. And uh, I mean, just to name a few, The Machinist, Session 9, uh, The Darien Gap, which I haven't seen, which I want to see. And of course, uh, Vanishing on 7th Street featuring a uh, show favorite, Tony Jeswinski. Uh, by the way, shout out to Tony. Thank you for uh, connecting us. Uh, you guys have worked on a couple things uh, over the years, yeah. um, but Vanishing is probably the, the most well-known. Um, a film that I think should have got much more play, and I think will in the coming years, is uh, Beirut. Yeah. Uh, I'm a real fan of that movie. Yeah. And it, it was such a... a it was a throwback, throwback in the best way. I know sometimes that can be used pejoratively, but uh, to me, it's a, it's it's definitely a positive, a throwback to a, a really realistic, you know, late seventies, even early eighties, you know, thriller that you know Hackman would have been in, and, exactly. and you know, some really interesting people with something on its mind, and of course, you know, Gilroy is preaches that to that choir all the time and and michael clayton is like tattooed on my fucking eyelids at this point so <laughs> that's a, that, that's one of my favorites and people should check that that's out funny. but oh, yeah. um i don't want to just list your resume we should just we should just talk uh so thanks for coming on so you're uh you you grew up in uh, the northeast is that is that your your roots i did i grew up in um a little town in connecticut um Right on the Iron Sound, and uh, was it the Darien Gap? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, but that movie sort of vaguely <laughs> references that world. I mean, all those towns along the coast are kind of the same, right? You know, these kind of like sleepaway towns, and you know, yeah. So it's very much in that world. And the two Connecticut's, right? Because we all, everybody has their preconceived like, oh, we talk with our, you know. Jaws locked in the country club, but there's a whole other Connecticut that people don't know about. You know? Yeah, I mean, you're right. They're normal, everyday, middle-income, middle-class people who live in Connecticut. It's not all. Yeah, it's not all the blue bloods, um, or you know, the kind of Wall Street folks who are working in the city. So yeah, I grew up there, and um, but yeah, you know, just a not 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 much to say about my childhood other than that it was comfortable and it, and got me put allowed me the leisure to explore my creative side you know i wasn't you know in a situation where i had to work i had to work at an early age were you always creative would would, would you know that the reason i bring that up is not because you know i mean yeah my childhood was fairly fairly pedestrian in, in my corner but the reason i i like to bring it up is do you have a first memory of either a film that touched you or the moment that you're like, I want to know how to do that. Or I want to do that. I mean, was that an earlier uh, discovery for you or did that come later? No, I think it was, I think it always starts early. At least the seed is planted. And for me, it was my dad who had a, you know, this was back in the days much prior to video when it was people recorded their memories on super eight cameras, super eight film, you know, little small gauge cameras. So he used to make a lot of videos of us as kids. Every family kind of had that, really. And that was, uh, and he would let me use the camera on occasion and mess around with my friends. And we made little short films and, you know, like literally just started making little 
little stories. Um, so he, in some ways, uh, planted the seed when I was a kid because the camera was always in my face, <laughs> recording me and my sister and my brother <laughs> doing our antics. So it kind of felt logical to kind of get behind it. Do you still have that camera? I still do. It doesn't work. Uh, so it probably could. You'd be hard to parts for it. That's what's funny is all those things like the, there's not even like the 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 acumen to fix them, let alone the parts to like replace. Right? They're just like these icons of uh, yeah of the Paleozoic era, right? You know? They really and are. I, I have a lot of friends who they they love to just go to swap you know like the Pasadena swap meet or whatever and uh, the Rose Bowl and they'll just have like. They're not working, but they're just like these beautiful icons of like 20th century technology on their shelf. You know, the old uh, news gathering cameras, the eights and the sixteens and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. And even stuff, you know, we used in film school was kind of now would be relegated to probably that dust heap. But yeah, they, they work pretty well. Uh, yeah. Even old video cameras, right? I mean, even those things are ancient history these days. Well, yeah, and then then you have the 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 the, the tape player on the the strap, right? The the purse with <laughs> yeah. with the camera, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. I don't know if you remember those. Going way back, yeah. Were were so were you like a videotape kid, like when were you or or like a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, you know, uh, movie, you know. I don't know, Casablanca or, you know, what, what have you, like, where, where were you starting to see films at, on the TV? Was there a local, local cinema? Like anyone, I just watched a lot of movies growing up. My dad and I would often go, um, it was a ritual to go on the weekends. You know, anytime a new movie came out, the whole country watched like a movie, right? It wasn't like there were that as many options as there are now. What'd you watch? Like throw throw out a name. Like what? What do you remember? Did your dad like genre stuff or? Well, I mean, my first, very first memories were your were movies like Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I remember going to that movie with my dad. I mean, not when it mm. first came out, but there was a re-release of it. And no, like yeah, the re-release, yeah, yeah, and seeing uh, you know those those the, the early James Bond films. I mean, all the, the, what would now be the popcorn movies of the era. We didn't go to like, you know, yeah. art house films, but we went and saw like great fun movies that some of them have, you know, stood the test of time. And then as I got a little older, of course it was like the Spielbergs and the, and the, you know, the Coppola's and all the great filmmakers of the late seventies and early eighties who were like, who made you, made movies magical, you know, and you wanted to know how they did it. And it hadn't been demystified yet. Like the process of making a movie was still kind of magic. You know, now everyone makes films on their phones or whatever, and it, everyone knows how to edit and everyone know, thinks they know how to tell a story. <laughs> everyone has their own YouTube channel. So, but back then and not too long ago, it was still like this kind of rarefied process and, and that was fascinating and it, it kind of was tempting to kind of figure out how it was done. So that kind of was one of the first things that got me interested in it. It makes me think like, I don't think people say it anymore, but, oh, what are you doing Saturday? Going to the movies, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. we're just going. I know. Right. You even have to say what, right. You just go and like, you just show up and even like if you were in a big enough group, you know, like, oh, we're going to go see Rocky too. Oh, we're going to see Conan the Barbarian. You know, we'll meet you back at the, you know, like afterwards at the arcade or whatever, you know? So exactly. it's just a different, 
a different way to, to consume it. But, um, and, and by the way, I have a buzzer in my chair. If we use the word content, I get shocked with, you know, 7,000 volts of electricity because <laughs> I fucking hate that word. Yeah. It's but, um, yeah, I mean, it was the movies and it's, uh, for me, like the making of stuff was, I remember like Ray Harryhausen, like oh, yeah. uh, the seventh voyage of Sinbad yeah. and stuff. And you'd be like, how in the hell yeah. did he make a, you know, eight handed scimitar wielding, whatever, you know, like all that stuff. And that's what kind of <laughs> took me. My first thing was a super eight animated, uh, claymation yeah. thing, you know, with yeah. the, with the, you know, the little right. plunger that you could yeah, plug yeah, into right. the bottom or whatever. thing and click it. <laughs> yeah. I think I did it for like uh for a class project for like right. um fifth grade or something, you know, really early shit. But uh um yeah, I mean we you know it's funny, uh you say Lawrence of Arabia, I've just started rewatching uh Bridge Over the River Kwai. Yeah. And what you forget uh, is like those films were popcorn movies, right? Yeah. And probably. now they're like art films. I mean, it, you know, the, the, that's what I miss is that that crossover when an Oscar-winning film was also a blockbuster, popcorn, crowd-pleasing movie. You know, it's really hard to cross the, the these two, you know, divergent. Even Scorsese just said it the other day. You know, well, there's indies and then there's this this other shit. You know, and it's kind of disheartening. But you know, hopefully, we'll come back to it. It's a rare thing, right? Yeah, it's it's just there's too many masters, and yeah, I mean, we we're not here to bitch about it. We're here to celebrate. But exactly. Um, were you an Ed Wood guy? I was I was looking at your first uh, the Frankenstein movie. Was that like an homage to sort of that stuff? It kind of was. Yeah, I used to yeah, when I got a little older, not when I was a kid, but when I got older, I got into a lot of those kind of cheesy cheeseball movies from the early days of kind of independent film, right? Well, you went you went to film school, right? I mean, yeah. you ended up going to uh, a couple different film programs, right? Well, I went to one film school in London, uh, London Film School. It's just a year-long program, learning the learning the ropes, learning how to load a camera, how to, you know, hang a light, that kind of thing. But really not much in the way of like how to tell a story and so forth. But it was a good a good kick in the butt to kind of get me more excited about it. Like a boot camp. You know, like a trade school. Yeah, like, like here's your school. tools, and here's how. Yeah, correct. But yeah, I used to love Ed Wood and I, all that stuff. And that movie was like, that was really. I, actually, we shot that film on Super Eight. That was just me and my post college slacker friends and living in Somerville, Massachusetts, all working shitty jobs, but st all being very creative in bands and filmmakers, and just kind of wanting to like do something creative. And we just banded together and said, let's make a silly movie that we can do on a dime you know and literally we made it probably for a dime and shot it on super eight and just every it was just you know it was, a, it was a lark but it was something to keep us keep us like engaged creatively and 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 you know uh and just kind of express oneself even in a silly way um is better than nothing, right? Especially making stuff with your friends, right? It's it's as much a, a sort of collaborative um, exactly it's, effort. It's yeah, a lovely right. collaboration, and it's you know when you when you when you work off of each other and you're, you you play off of each other and you have like a sounding board and you also they can call out your bullshit, you know, and you're trying to be all whatever, and you can call out theirs. So like it guides you a little bit. Working in a vacuum is a lot trickier. So over the years in my films and projects i've often collaborated with people writers or so forth to kind of help uh 
steer the process more. And that maybe started with that movie actually way back in the day. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. So that was an early. And then it went from there to the Darien Gap, which was I would call like a real movie movie. I mean, you went to Sundance with that film, right? So it was sort of a, the next step in the evolution. Was that sixteen you shot it on, or yeah, it was sixteen millimeter. Yeah, so we went up a whole, the whole eight gate, a whole eight millimeters, a um, whole iteration. <laughs> it felt like a big step for it is. By the way, it is a big step. It it is. I mean, you know, it's a real camera. You're recording sync sound. It's like. It's, you know, you, it, you can have, obviously it was for, for me, it was a big step, but yeah, that, that movie was, um, again, just, I had already been to film school. I was living in Boston, as I said, kind of working odd jobs. I was working as an editor on other people's projects. I was just kind of really, uh, you know, uh, treading water until something should come around. But in the meantime, I was really wanting to do something and felt like, you see all these movies come out of, coming out of Sundance in the early '90s, like Clerks and Brothers McMullen, and all these little independent films. It was sort of the rise of the rise of the of the small indies that were all getting bought by Miramax and October Films and so forth. And I felt like I could make a movie. You know, what, what's to hold me back from making a feature? So basically, cobbled together friends and family and cashed in some money I had and basically uh, made this small indie feature um, called The Daring Gap, which was kind of like a romantic comedy ultimately, but it was, it also incorporated a lot of my old Super 8 home movies into it, which I used kind of as flashbacks as if the character was remembering his past. So I kind of incorporated nice. yeah, yeah, my yeah. old work into it and it, yeah, it got into uh, it, I w it was like, to me, it was like really my first, uh, I guess, door that opened because the movie got into Sundance back in 96 and, um, and landed me, uh, you know, a, a little bit of, uh, into that world, which I was totally unfamiliar with. I lived in Boston. I wasn't hanging out with other filmmakers really. And suddenly it was like, wow, this could lead to something. This could be almost like a career. And, uh, and it also helped me get an agent and, and, you know, that helps grease the wheels and actually helped me discover the other, the guy who helped finance my next movie, which also went to sign it. So yeah, it was definitely a stepping stone. Um, and also just creatively allowed me to in, enjoy the expression of, of, uh, how, and you know, anytime you make a movie, even now, I'm sure Martin Scorsese would say the same thing you're always learning from the process forever. And like, so that first, those first movies though, you learn a lot really quickly. You learn what doesn't work and you learn what does work and you start to hone in on the things that interest you and a certain maybe creative style that you, that you feel is your strong suit. And so that film kind of helped in that regard for me. Like I, the next few films I made after it were kind of in the same vein, these sort of, melancholy romantic comedies with pop music soundtracks very popular in the 90s those kind of movies that was of that era the sort of miramax factory of like um uh emergent directors emergent talent uh peppy soundtrack cool poster like bam you know like spend 10 make 30 next case right and it was like a whole little business model um, there's a lot of those yeah it makes sense the kind of films that you make when you don't have the backing and the 
financial resources are movies about people like yourself and they might be comedic because the process is absurd and you're not making like big epic sci-fi movies or or like movies with a lot of scope because you don't have the resources so you make movies that are very personal and they're about people and they're about people sitting around a bar shooting the shit and you look at a lot of those movies like clerks sitting around a at a video store brothers mcmullen brothers hanging out in long island my movie was about slackers living in Boston, trying to figure out what they're doing with their lives. There was that movie Slacker. There was all those movies that came out at that time that were about almost really about the filmmakers themselves because they didn't, because that's, you, you write what you know about, right? You write what you're closest to. And that was really, uh, for me, an obvious choice to, in terms of what you're going to do for your first feature. You don't want to bite too big. Yeah. And it's also like, I mean, um, it's, it's the classic model, you know, the return of the Secaucus seven with John sales and sort of the, our indie heroes when we were coming up, they were doing the same things. It's that, you know, what in music, what they might call like shoegaze, right? Like that uh, self-reflective and and it's also like, you know, uh, a rebel without a crew sort of uh, aesthetic, because like you said, sitting around a bar, it means like you either own the bar or your own uncle will let you shoot there, you know, between 2 a.m. And, and 8 a.m. when the drunks come in, right? It's, right. it's, it's the resources management. Like, oh, I'll put my friends in. Oh, my one dude, let's like clerks is a perfect example. Like, hey, Muse, you're fucking funny. Like, just get up there and do your shtick that you do every day anyway. Like, okay, cool. Right. You know? And um, what's interesting though is like, so you could say, well, okay, we're in that now. And like Jason Muse would be like a, a, a TikTok uh, guy today, maybe. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe not. Um, the means of production have changed and become so affordable and accessible to anyone that there is no, you know, I think that was like Coppola who predicted that back in the 80s. He said, pretty soon everyone's going to have a movie camera in their hand and and have their own film studio, but making their own personal films. Well, that happened. It's happened. It's already happened. And you can do it. He, yes, he was sitting in the, in the silverfish, silverfish right? his uh, onset right. little videotape. Uh, he had like that proto avid setup that he had on one from the heart. And right. he said, he actually said some little girl, he was yeah. like some little girl in her garage is going to be the next, whatever. And she's just going to have a video camera and it's just going to happen. And, and that, he was totally right. And that yeah. little girl times a million now on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, making their own yeah, million. I think when he said it though, he kind of maybe saw it as like, this could be, you know, not this brave new world, but maybe like actually something good for cinema. And maybe it is sort of, but then you can also look at it as the over democratization of the process to the point where like there is no bar anymore. Everything goes. And because of that, everything sort of is mediocre. And how do you know when something is good and has quality and is actually has some discipline behind it? You don't. So I think there's a downside to that, obviously, you know, um, we've seen that over the past 15 years and no one's really solved it. I mean, we're, we're in it, you know? Well, the thing is, I don't think like people always ask when people when young ish people um, inquire about, well, how do you get into, how do you get, become a filmmaker? How do you become a director? What do you, what's the process? And I'm going to go to film school and learn all, I'm going to watch all the movies and learn about the process. And, and then, then I can become a director. Right. And um, in my sort of, what I always come back with is, you know, the best thing you can do is like, 
first of all, you have to learn how to tell stories, but to learn how to tell stories, you have to have stories to tell, you know, you have to have a life that you can draw off of, you know, if you, you can't just like create it in a vacuum, I suppose you can, but then you're just going to be derivative and you're going to be making movies about making movies or whatever and be all self-referential, <laughs> but like, to, but to be a, you mean like a podcast about making movies, <laughs> <laughs> No, but to be a person that has a voice or, or that that has some sort of value you have to pull it from some place right and usually it's a place that's personal to you it's your story reworked in a number of different ways or whatever it is but but i think that takes time like you can't just jump into this without having lived without without some scars and bruises and calluses that you've developed in the process along the way. And that's the other thing I feel that gets lost. There is this sense, this is a different subject to a certain degree, not to whine about the you know, younger generation, but I have a couple of kids, so I feel I'm entitled to. But, like you know, there's no sense of, like, wanting to pay the dues a little bit, you know, to suffer for your art, to, to, to live in a shitty apartment with no money and try still try to make a movie. Uh, now it's just there's an expectation that, expectation that you can kind of get it all without that without that blood sweat and tears but i think the blood sweat and tears is critical to the process the harder it is often the better the the more you struggle against the odds the more you succeed ultimately you know if it's too easy then nothing comes out of it i think i hope you're loving the talk so far before we get any further I want to remind you, we've got a whole vault one mile below the sands of the Utah desert, deep in a salt mine where the barometric pressure, uh, low moisture, and uh, protection against potential nuclear attack is where we keep the vault of our reels, of our kinescopes, our SciQuest drives, which back up the How I Got Greenlit library, which are just as good, arguably better, and something you haven't heard waiting for you. Two seasons of love. Take, for example, our most recent roundtable, where we talked to producer Evan Ostrowski, producer Craig Perry, and entertainment lawyer Rosemead Hart about what the hell's going on in this business. This was a fun thing that we started doing. We, 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 we keep doing the love interviews, the long forms, but the roundtables, they're a nice, they're a snack. They're, they're an hour, they're, they're in and out, and there's always some gems. So enjoy this clip. This is where the industry going thing, the quarter by quarter, they're short-sighted. They're looking at a way to maximize their quarterly values and not the overall health five, 10, 15 years from now. That to me is the real question is, are you going to create a business that just by dint of marginalizing and making sure that your margins are tighter and tighter and tighter, suddenly you're not gonna have a business anymore because you're not allowing anybody to understand how to fail. There should be guaranteed two, uh, two steps and a polish for any screenwriter who sells something. You have to have a chance to do a rewrite. You have That's to. That's a lot different than a minimum room. That is a gotta have. Development must be Development. And we wouldn't have all of these wonderful drugs if they didn't spend billions in R&D. But there all of the go. corporations yes. look at Give development pharma. Yeah. and they're like, wait, you spent how much? You spent a million dollars and got a shitty script? That's an outrage. I'm like, dude, it's it's well, alchemy. It's not science. No, but it's like the first pill is a billion dollars. The next one is four cents, right? The first, you know, that. Yes, but I guess my point is there's an expectation for people 
people who are outside the business that when you put money in, you must get something out of it. It's a bit more scattered than that. There's so many factors that go into making something even feasible, no less good. <laughs> I mean, Evan, how many times you developed a script and you spent all this time and energy, but there's just that magical, special something. It's not popping off the page most of the time. It, it's like a 10 to one. Yeah. yeah I, used to, I, used to like, I, used to, I used to say, you got to develop 10 scripts to get one that's worth shooting. And exactly. you got to put your heart and soul to all 10. And mm -hmm. then that's the, that's the, that's the gamble you, you, you make. All this and more, our old episodes are archived at howigotgreenlit.com. So please check it out, howigotgreenlit.com. And that'll take you to the library and go back into the vault. We'd love to see you there too. As for now, back to Brad Anderson. Was there a greenlit moment for you when, you know, you got accepted to Sundance or, you know, something got a big distribution or wherever where you felt like, oh, this is my life now. Like I'm not, I'm no longer like pressed against the glass. Like I am in the walled city and now I have to stay here. You know, was that, was there a moment in there in the nineties when, what, what, where would you track that feeling when you, when you felt like you had a uh, greenlit thyself? Right. Yeah. I uh well sure yeah, i think it, as as i said and you you agreed that time in the 90s was kind of heady for young gish filmmakers like myself who were working on the margins and just wanted to do it and didn't really think of it as a career yet but for me it was definitely sundance was helped launch me like it did many young younger filmmakers of that era my first film as i said which got into 96 but it was a small um I mean, it was like a true guerrilla style, no budget, like film, the sound quality sucked. There was like no one in it of any note. It was, it was, like, it was a real raw kind of raw dog kind of movie, which was great. And, but what it did was it, it introduced me to, uh, uh, you know, number one, it got into the festival, which as I said, kind of opened up a lot of doors for me, but still it's like, okay, well, what's next? Right. And so I was like, what, okay, well, you, you made a little splash. What are you going to do next? So I met a uh, through that film. I met a producer financier in Boston, who um, a real estate guy actually, who wanted to get more into movies for whatever reason. And he agreed to pay me and my friend to write a script. And if we liked, if he liked it, he'd finance the movie. And he did. And we made a movie called Next Stop Wonderland, which was a kind of again a kind of romantic comedy set in Boston with Hope Davis and Bill Hoffman and a number of interesting people. And it. Uh, of that era, like you said, and in Cali Thorn. I didn't mean it to be this way. The reasons why I'm leaving are on this tape. It points out the six points of why I think our relationship is doomed. Just when she thought her love life had hit rock bottom. I don't believe in fate. What? But like there's some unseen hand like leading you down the garden path. Her mother came along and made everything worse. Hi, just look at page 67. And basically that movie also uh, got into the festival and um, and Miramax bought it. Um, and they bought it for a fairly substantial number. And that was definitely the moment of me going like, wow, this is not just like me fucking around with a, making a script, writing, writing a script and getting the, having the privilege to make a movie. Like you can make money doing this. You can have a career doing this. And that was definitely for me. I remember when they sold the film to 
meeting Harvey Weinstein and his clan at the Stein Erickson <laughs> Lodge in Sundance. And they were like, oh, we really like, we really like your movie and we, we want to buy it. What do you think of that? And I was like, sounds good to me, man. I, 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 I you know, I didn't know anything about the business and I was just kind of like, wow. Right. Wants to you kind of didn't even know. So, <laughs> we want to be in the Brad Anderson business. Right. <laughs> but I think sitting there in that, in that, in their, in their room at Sundance as they negotiated, as they negotiated the deal was uh, definitely for me a, a kind of moment of like, this could be what I do for the rest of my life. Like it still wasn't clear to me if that was going to be the case, but I felt like, you know, if this is what can happen, you can make a movie and some, someone's going to buy it for all this money and put it in theaters. Then like I can do that again. So for sure that was, I would imagine if you want to, phrase it like the green lit light moment of like, or even the light bulb moment of kind of like, wow, I can do this. This is something I, maybe I, I, I got a handle on. Um, that's when it set off for me because after that I got the proverbial three picture deal at Miramax, which really just meant <laughs> to make, make my next films. And, you know, we tried the, the story there is we tried for a couple of years to get another movie off the ground. I wrote a couple of things. They sent me some things. Nothing ever ultimately materialized. And I ended up, I ended up doing a couple of movies like in the, on the side because I was like so tired with the process. But for sure, that was the um, that was the gen- that was the sort of uh, origin moment for me. And it gave me a lot of press and self and also just built up my self-confidence feeling like, well, I can maybe I can do this like fairly well, you know, I don't know. I can, I can do this better than I can do my other odd jobs that I did in Boston, like working at a liquor store or moving furniture. Like I can actually maybe be a director. So that was definitely a a big eye opener for me. Right. And so, you know, my first few films were all in that same ilk. They were these sort of like raw romantic comedies, but a little bit sad with a, with a little shoegazer vibe to them. That was like the, that was the shtick. And I liked it cause I liked those movies, but I also was like feeling like it was, had run its course for me as a, as a interest, frankly, as your, yeah, that burgeoning style, which then comes to session nine, which is a left turn from these light right. affairs, right? Which was the left turn. Yeah. And that's why I said I, I, I had kind of exhausted my romantic. <laughs> well, uh, you've told all your stories of your ex-girlfriends, like you're out of like personal shit. You got to start. Yeah. There's nothing more to say. And I was just kind of like, this is something fucking grand, just like dark, fucking, fucking mind blowing. Yeah. And, and so session nine, I mean, that's dude. I mean, people, uh, it's funny. Like that's probably. I always say this to people that have, you know, a bit of a, a track record. I'm like, are you, is that the one you're fighting in your uh, eventual obituary? You know, cause it's, that, that's always mentioned as one of your top films, you know, even though it now it's, you know, it's 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, do you love that? That is like right. primary. Or are you like, no man, I got the, the, the one, yeah. the one's coming. It's like next one. I'm going to top that. You know what I mean? Like, no, right. Well, I don't. I mean, who knows where one goes with with one's movies? I think I have this kind of career where every movie is is sort of so different. I mean, Beirut is no is, is has very much not like that. There's nothing to do with the movie I just finished. You know, so it's like I like I have a very eclectic sensibility. So 
you know, some people love session nine, correct. It's got a cult following, but some people adore, you know, uh, next stop Wonderland. Cause it's like a, it's a women's picture ultimately in some ways. Um, so I've had this eclectic career, but session nine came out of, as you said, like my desire to break the mold and flip it. Um, and uh, and just do something different. I, I mean, and the, the reality is, I've always loved horror. Some of my favorite filmmakers were the Roman Polanskis and the Kubricks and the Hitchcocks, and you know, going back to the classic kind of suspense directors and the darker tones. It's something that was always interest to me. Uh, John, I would throw John Carpenter on on that pile as well for me. Yeah, John Carpenter was was one of them. Um, but basically, that movie came out of. Uh, it was also at the tail end of my deal with Miramax, which in some ways was the most fruitful part of my career because in not being able to get a movie off the ground with them, I ended up making two other movies that I'm proud of. And Session 9 was like one of those movies. I remember sitting at a bar with my the, my friend and the co-writer of it, Steve Jevon, and we're like, you know what, this sucks. I'm not doing anything. I can't get anything going. Let's just make a movie. And I was literally like going back to the old days of, Let's just put on a play. Yeah, man. Let's just make a movie. Let's, yeah, let's, we got a barn. Let's put on a dance. Yeah, fuck yeah. Right. But we wanted to do something scary and dark and we needed to do it on a budget and we needed to make it, so we needed to, it to be contained and we needed it to, uh, I wanted to do something that there were a lot of horror, so-called scary movies coming out at the time. One of them was like scary movie and scream and all these kind of silly send-ups of horror right parodies and satires and observations and deconstructions yeah there was yeah, a lot of yeah, that yeah, yeah they were but they weren't scary like in no. the sense of like dread and terrifying no they were clever they were just very clever and like sort of above it all yeah yeah we wanted to throw all that out so we when i was living in boston there was a there was a abandoned mental hospital about 20 miles out of the city that, that actually they often used as a film offices, when they, when movies were in town, making using the locations around Boston, they would use the, the buildings because they're all vacant. And I remember going there a few times. The place was in ter- terrifyingly creepy and 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 sort of beautiful at the same time. Called Danvers State Mental Hospital. And so I basically we my friend Steve and I were like, well, why don't we write a script that's just set at this one location? If we can own it, then we don't have to look for any other locations. It'll just be five dudes and it'll just be like, that's, those were our rules for like how to build the story. So you backed into the story. You did the rebel without a crew thing. You backed into, okay, what, what are our marching orders? Now let's find a core in that rather than just sort of, it wasn't like your buddy said, Hey man, I know you usually direct these sort of lighter fare, but what about this? You actually took the step to say, no, I I need to change it up. I want to try a different genre, a different thing that people know me right. for. Okay. So you were feeling a little, not burned out, but and maybe it, sort of like needing a refresher and, and uh, different muscles. Oh, I, I, but that's always, you need, yeah, you need to flex different muscles. I find that some people don't, they, they want to they they just do their thing. They, <laughs> they, 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 they but I, I, I like to change it up. And, and that movie is like, if you're going to change it up, you might as well just change it up dramatically. Um, you want the people who loved Next Stop Wonderland to look at Session 9 and be like, what the fuck was this guy thinking? Um, and that's kind of the way we approached it. Let's just do something really grim and dark and spooky and gets under your skin. And, and, um, and that was, uh, 
and, and it was all, you know, on, on, on purpose. And so we bought, we made the movie for like, again, not a lot of money. And um, there was some, you know, we got some good actors. Peter Mullen was amazing. This actor from, from Scotland and, 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 and put together this, this cool little cast and went up there for literally 20 days and shot the film. And we shot it on a, uh, we were one of the first films. I don't know if this is actually true, but I've been told it's true. We were one of the first films to shoot on this new Sony 24 F frame, 24 P camera was called. It was a digital, yeah. uh, one of the first digital cameras that Lucas had just used it on like attack of the clones or something. And it was just, it was still uh, really- yeah. Phantom menace. And then it was sort of starting to trickle into, into the, the, like you say, you know, so lower budget territory. And it was because I think the whole apparatus had to be built around it. Like can a post house handle this file? Yeah. It was all that kind of stuff. So you were coming in. So did that give you uh, less light, quicker shoot? Like, was that, was that an advantage for what you wanted to do? It was the, that was the idea that we were told we could work quicker and, and as you said, not need as much gear and, and light. And not only that, but you can watch people, the, money. Yeah, time. yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was a calculated decision based on the budget. And also they gave it like Sony was looking for productions to sort of beta test their, their camera. And that we, and we were fortunate enough to sort of be one of those productions. So we, test we were testing it out as we were shooting it and some of it you know you look back and it's still maybe not it's not up to speed as to what cameras are now but still it was like wow this was like impressive technology and i just remember being able to the, that was the first time i remember being able to watch what the camera was watching on a hd monitor in full color and being like oh my god it looks amazing because back before that you were used to watching these little black and white monitors and barely get a good angle. You kind of squint and, you, and then you see it projected and you, Oh fuck. What was that thing in the background? I didn't see it. Um, yeah. Or through a viewfinder. But um, I love the, that, that spirit of like, I mean the, 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 the hospital is a character, right? I mean, that's, that's you're halfway home. And then you just got to like not fuck it up and be true to that level of this, this eeriness that you, you found, you know? I mean, that's, that was part of the trick was like, you know, if you can find a location that does much of the heavy lifting in terms of creating the dread and the sense of unease and you're halfway there, like, and that was that location. We were lucky because we were the only and first and last production to ever shoot there. Cause I think they condemned it shortly <laughs> after we finished and then to the ground and build condominiums. Oh God. Kind of like in the movie. <laughs> um, so, but it was, uh, it, I don't know. Location to me is a very, it's as any filmmaker to a certain degree, it's like a very important part of the process in terms of how you envision a movie is when you see the locations, it all starts to come together in your head. And, and that one we back loaded into the location. So we wrote specific scenes for the, the locations that are in the movie. So it was, it made it that much easier. And hence we were able to shoot it in 20 days because we were in one location and right. literally sleeping at the hotel two minutes away. So it was like living in a, it was like shooting on a studio, you know, studio. Well, lab. I'm just glad to see how healthy you are. I imagine that like th that would be one of those deals where like <laughs> 20 years later, the entire cast and crew are dead with like lung cancer. Like, yes, it turns out it was asbestos. <laughs> 
Everyone's dying of lung cancer. Yeah. Yeah, but Jesus. dude, I mean, isn't it funny? Right. I, I don't have a like a catchy it's a curse. It's a curse, but like I don't have a catchy name for it, but it's the it's the it's the mesionic zeal. Like I'm kind of a clean freak, but if I'm shooting something, I'm gonna lay in a pile of fucking biohazard waste that's still glowing and sort of vibrating and smells like gasoline if that's the low angle that I want. Do you know what I mean? Like there's just something about that yeah. you just throw and, and so many of the best location, you know, my buddy does a lot of uh he's located in Detroit and he's sort of the the guy that, you know, people come in and they're like, you know all the good shit. And of course, so he knows all these asbestos latent, like decaying urban landscapes and stuff. And I'm like, you better be wearing, you better be wearing all kinds of like, you know, gear on your lungs and everything because it looks cool, but like you're definitely throwing your body into, you know, it's like, it's like the NFL, like you're sacrificing your, the last 20 years of your life to get the shot or whatever. But, um, was it like that Kubrickian, uh, impulse to, cause it also, it's, it's a, it's a commentary. I mean, the best sci-fi from planet of the apes to whatever, you know, any Edgar Allan Poe, whatever it's a commentary, right? There's a little bit of, something to it that's not just hey here's a genre like you know confection for you was that something you guys were setting out to do like well, sure i mean i think that kubrick and and uh you know in terms of just the the pace of it and the big just even the photography like the big scopey compositions and the sort of slow burn like that was definitely uh, on our minds when we made it and you know like any movie you want to particularly horror like you don't want to answer all the questions you want to keep the mystery alive um because it's not scary if you know all the answers right well it's also it leaves the audience out like don't answer everything so they complete right. complete it right i think it was uh billy wilder he's like you know I'll lead them to water but don't give them the water like right allow allow for the the audience to complete uh the circuit if you will right, right. and that's uh, a lot of people uh, look a lot of filmmakers are scared of that they want to make sure their point lands and there's a ton of cooks in the kitchen now that certainly are like i mean reading a lot of the commentary about the writers guild and this and that and people complaining about notes it's just like a lot of the fans will be like, look, I'm not dumb. You don't have to tell me six times that the next thing you got to do is whatever, find the map. It's like, Jesus, I heard it already. And it's like, well, those are the notes, right? Hey, some people in the back won't get that the next thing that they need to do is this. Like, yeah, but you see it on the screen. No, no, no. Six people have to say it, you know, throughout. So we absolutely understand what's happening next. There's a, there's a loss of that. And we'll get into that in a little bit when we talk about the B side that you brought, which is uh, Nicholas Rogue's, uh, don't look now. I mean, that's a great example of, uh, there's not a lot of dialogue in that film. I mean, it's all feeling and it's all like, well, what are you seeing and what are you feeling? And, and, and that's kind of a lost art, right? Another of those, you know, not to say that throwback, but you know, the, yep. the, that, the subtlety and, and even just leaving room for interpretation is getting lost even in Indies, right? It's like, here's my point and here's my point and here's a shot and aren't I clever? And it's like, you got to be brave enough to just let it sit there and, and some people will get it and some people won't, you know, that ambiguity has always been, you know, that's been part of my film filmography and many of my movies is like not over explaining stuff. And sometimes that can be frustrating for 
certain viewers, but I agree with you that you don't want to walk them through it. You want them to be able to feel like they're discovering things on their own or figuring things out. The thing about session nine, which is interesting, is that there's so many different interpretations about what it means, what the ending means, what the what the tapes that we hear throughout the film signify. And so that's interesting in my mind as a filmmaker is like, I, I might've had my own interpretation when I, when I made it about what it means, you know? Um, and if there's any undercurrent of like subtext, but it's cool when other people who watch it come up with their own unique ideas and interpretations and the machinist, which I made afterwards is very similar in that way. It's like another movie. That's a bit of a, a mystery, you know, like what does, you know, it's not, not everything is underscored and spelled out. Um, and I like those movies. I just like movies like that, that don't spoon feed you. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that would be a, a, a through line with all these different subject matters, genres, tones. It's that you're, you're allowing some space. You're the, the ambiguity. It may be the through line then if, of a Brad Anderson film, right? You yeah. know, it's a, it, that's one of the, yeah, you know, that's it. I'm an ambiguous filmmaker. I like that. That's, that'll be my new thing. And that was Brad Anderson. Thank you for coming on, Brad. Uh, that was, um, and again, thanks to Tony Jaswinski for the love connection there. This was great. Um, I got a lot out of it. He's obviously got a ton of really interesting people he's worked with, really interesting story he's told. And we sort of, we're of the, you know, we're, we're both Gen X, so we can, not that we've traveled all the same roads, but we definitely, a lot of people, a lot of places, um, we sort of have borne witness to the, you know, the rise of uh, indie film and the sort of explosion of Sundance and Miramax and October films and, you know, uh, that whole ride. And then that, that sort of evolved into the birth of, peak television and how all these talented indie uh, filmmakers in front of and behind the camera um, as the independent film distribution model sort of started to flag after DVDs went away. Um, peak TV was only too happy to scoop up uh, incredibly innovative storytellers to improve the level of your average episode of Riptide or Matlock or um, Love Boat and it morphed into The Wire and, you know, The Sopranos and uh, Boardwalk Empire Fringe and, you know, all the film, all the shows that Brad worked on, uh, Man in the High Castle, uh, Treme. I mean, it's just stay and night. And it wasn't an accident. It was because we had this incredible farm team of young filmmakers who showed up and were like hey i want to win sundance too and well it's still there it's just not the uh you know lottery ticket it once was but and then of course you know talking about um we got coming up soon uh part two which is going to be incredible uh come back next week we're continuing our conversation with brad anderson and he's brought his b-side movie which is Nicholas Rogue's 1973 Don't Look Now, which, uh, as they once said in Bull Durham, that's a humdinger. Spooky, weird, stylish, snap zooms, spooky dialogue, 
strange English children chasing balloons. It's got everything a growing boy would want out of a creepy 70s, early 70s psychological thriller that may or may not be about the devil or ghosts or figments of my fucking imagination or whatever, but it's a trip. Enjoy it. I did. We will come back. That is part two of Brad Anderson with me, your host, Alex Collegian, on the show that gives you exactly the dosage that you're looking for of film appreciation. And that is How I Got Greenlit. Thanks for playing. See you next week. Next Chapter Podcasts.